Good morning and welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for being in person and or online. I know with this weather, there might be some people tempted to be online, but we hope that uh, the weather doesn't get too crazy. But the good news is that, you know, because it is a Canadian winter, if things do get kind of crazy, being online isn't going to be a big deal. So welcome this morning. My name is Pastor Roger. I am the teaching pastor here in Uptown Community Church, like you all didn't know that. Uh, This morning, we are going to wrap up part one of our Exodus series, because of course Christmas is around the corner, and I'm really excited about the Christmas series. You know, Christmas and Easter are, are these two times of year that pastors got a lot of pressure on them to kind of find a new and exciting way to uh, kind of talk about these two um, really important moments in church life, and I'm really kind of excited about what I've, I think I've stumbled upon for Christmas this year. So that starts next week. So next week we'll be kind of taking a break uh, from Exodus. And in the new year, we will come back for Exodus. Just so you know, the first part of Exodus is going to be a lot, was a lot, is going to be a lot longer than the second part, but you'll see when we get there. Um, let's just talk, uh, let's recap what we talked about last week. So last week, look at this idea of freedom, right? And so The story last week, as we looked in the book of Exodus, was Israel has finally been freed from Egypt, right? We had the plague of the Passover, right? And the plague of the Passover was the plague of the the firstborn being killed. And so they walk into the wilderness free. But what we realized was is they really weren't free yet because in their minds and in their hearts, they were still enslaved to Egypt. So I said last week that freedom is a process, right? And the questions we asked was, what enslaves us? Why do we let it? And, and what does freedom look like? Remember I said to you last week that um, freedom is, is something we kind of make a mistake with, right? So one of the primary mistakes with freedom is that we think it is a removal of, right? So I said to you, what is freedom? So most people, and again, remember I had this conversation as I was delivering milk to some of the customers I, I delivered milk to. I said, what does freedom look like to you? And of course, because they're used to me asking them really weird questions, they said, oh, the majority of people talked about freedom financially. So freedom was removal of debt, right? And so it's like, if I won the lottery, I'd be free. But the fact is you wouldn't be because you'd be enslaved to something completely different. But that was what most people thought of. So when we think of freedom, we think of, oh, if I could just get rid of this, if I could just get rid of this, this issue, whether it's physical, whether it's emotional, relational, whatever it might be, we think of freedom as freedom from something. And that is, a, that is actually a, a mistake. We talk about this idea of, of freedom and enslavement as something that we are unwilling to receive except grace for. So what I meant by that was, is that a lot of times we think of freedom in, 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 in the natural realm, and that's you know completely normal. But as Christ followers, we think of freedom as spiritual. And what I mean by that is that we think to ourselves, if I was just free from this sin, right? If I was just free from this habit, these desires, this thought life, this behavior, this habitual thing that I in, engage with, I, I don't want to, right? We think of that kind of freedom, right? And remember we looked at that passage of scripture uh, when Paul says, you know, he's, he prays the Lord to remove this thorn. And again, there's been a lot of debate on what this thorn was, and we don't know yet, but the answer that God gives him kind of implies what the thorn might be, right? Because the thorn is this idea of something that, that kind of holds Paul back from fully embracing what God has for him. And God's response was, my grace is sufficient for you, right? And that kind of gives us a hint of whatever this thorn was that Paul was dealing with. And so as Christ followers, we think of this idea of freedom and we say to ourselves, well, freedom is removal of a sin. But again, that's not what it is for, right? And I said last week that 
Christian freedom is not freedom from, but freedom to, right? When we think of Christian freedom, what we have to remember is that it's actually not a freedom from, because if you believe that Christian freedom is a freedom from something, you will always have something that you are enslaved to. You know, what's interesting is that um, I was thinking about this, and this is one of the rabbit holes I didn't go down last week, and of course, you're welcome or, you know, sorry, but the idea was... A lot of times we think of ourselves, based upon our age and stage, right? We think, these are what I'm struggling with. So if you're a student, freedom can be, you know, freedom from student debt, right? Or, or, or freedom can be a relationship. Or freedom can be marks on a certain grade or graduation or even a job, a full-time job. And heaven forbid if it's an actually in the field that you study, wouldn't that be fantastic, right? But then, of course, the, the young have... have, have <laughs> have desires and have certain things, right? So at that age and stage, freedom looks very different. But when you get a little bit older in life, freedom can look at something different, right? So, you know, we always talk about young adults as, you know, uh, post-high school pre-mortgage, right? That was, that's kind of our rough definition of, of what young adults can, be look, can look like. And again, that's not always accurate. But then there is a stage where you get to, hopefully, eventually, where the mortgage comes into play, right? And it's interesting. When I talk to people what freedom looks like, right, to those who actually owned a house or were hoping to own a house or just started to own a house, it's freedom from a mortgage. If I could just get rid of that mortgage, right? And again, the mortgage is the biggest amount of debt that most people carry, hopefully. And so it's like freedom from... So age and stage has an aspect to this as well, too. And we, we wrapped up by looking at this passage of Scripture from Romans chapter 6, verse 16. And I love what Paul says here. He says this, don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? So whenever we think about this idea of freedom, it's not freedom from something. And this can also be something, as Christ followers, we really have to wrap our minds around. Because if we ask God to remove a desire, a habit, a thought life, and he doesn't, then we're left with this idea that either God doesn't love me, God doesn't exist, or God is too busy to deal with this aspect of my life. But again, it's not that God will remove these things from you. Instead, he invites you freedom to something. So Paul says, who do you choose to obey? And, and what I really, really hope that you took away from last week, and again, I hope these things quite a bit, but I'm never sure they're quite true, but it's a realization that it's not about freedom from the parts of us that shame us, hurt us, and break us down, but it's freedom to this idea of, of, of the grace and love that Christ has for us. Right? I want you to understand that you have freedom to the love of Jesus, to the access, to the, to the riches of, of what God has for us. Remember my definition of grace, and it's not my definition of grace. It was by a professor in Bible college. By the way, a professor in Bible college who completely annoyed me, and I, I com- could not stand, and I know that sounds terrible, that you'd have a Bible college professor like that. He was really annoying. But I never forgot his definition of grace, right? God's riches at Christ's expense. He may be annoying, but that was something that has always stuck with me to today. So freedom is to God's riches at Christ's expense. And, and, and the riches that Jesus has for us, the first and foremost is forgiveness. Who do you choose to obey? The enemy who calls you by your sin or Christ who calls us children, heirs? to what the inheritance that he has for us. So that's what we talked about last week. And again, it was kind of a heavier one, but you get the idea uh, where we're going with that. This morning, we are going to continue on. But before we do that, for those of you who track with us on Facebook or Instagram, and if you don't, you should follow us or like us so that you'll see all my brilliant social media posts. They're not. But uh, 
yesterday I posted something about this idea of self-deception. Because this morning we're, we're going we're gonna to kind of really look at Israel and we're going to find out that what they think they are, they actually aren't. And God is going to expose what they really are by some mechanism and you know, no spoiler alerts at this point in time. There's a great article came across uh, about self-deception. And the article's title is Self-Deception Has Many Faces. But this is by uh, Peg O'Connor by Psychology Today. And this is what she says about self-deception. Self-deception is often easy to recognize in others, but far more difficult to recognize in ourselves. With another, we have a, we have a better perspective that is not colored by an investment in seeing that person or his circumstances in a certain light. With ourselves, we both lack perspective and have an investment in seeing and understanding our ways and our circumstances in certain ways. So what she means by this is self-deception is something we all live with. Right, Because the reality is, is we can look at our lives and we can always give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. So for example, for those of you who perhaps drive or have ever driven a motorized vehicle of some sort, you drive and someone has cut you off. Right? We've all experienced it, right? And especially as people snow, it's almost as if people have to relearn how to drive in the snow. Right this morning, I, I, I was driving here, and uh, this person was trying to pass me, and they, they fishtailed, you know, trying to get past me, and, and it's like, you know, slow down, right? And, and so, you know, the person kind of cuts me off, and of course, you know, we all have the same impulse of like, really, right? But the fact is, is we look at that person, and we judge them because they, they cut us off. But if we're really honest with their driving skills, we've all cut people off. We've all done this as well, too. But what happens is when we do it, we have reasons for it. I'm very busy. I'm going to be late. I slept in. We have reasons for it. We, we justify our behavior, right? And so we'll judge other people usually more harsh than we'll judge ourselves. Now, that's, that's a general rule because I also know two people will judge themselves very harshly as well in certain areas. But in general, we judge other people more harshly than we'll judge ourselves. This is an aspect of self-deception. It's very difficult for us to know our own flaws, our own shortcomings, because we don't have a way of filtering it. It's funny. In dating relationships and marriage relationships and engagements, because we have a couple of those here this morning as well, too. Oh, by the way, congrats um, for those couples that have in, embarked upon this. Um, but in, 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 in romantic relationships, what happens is self-deception can be a piece of what you have to overcome in order to understand how better to be uh, a healthy, authentic couple. Right? And so what can happen is, is if you don't realize <laughs> what, what you do that can bug your partner, you'll continue to do it, and your partner will continue to, bug, to, to be bugged. And so I always use this phrase whenever I do premarital counseling, is this idea of, of, of frustration. And I use this phrase, you know, uh, frustration is unspoken expectations. Oftentimes we are frustrated with our partners by expectations we have that we have not articulated. And so people continue to do these behaviors that we didn't realize that. So, for example, in my own marriage, back when we, my wife and I were first married. So I used to have a student way of doing this, is I used to know dirty clothes, but basically they're at the pile of the side of my bed, right? You know, you'd wear something, you'd leave it there, and eventually I would get around to doing laundry, eventually. Basically, if the pile got higher than my bed, 
then I knew that I needed to do laundry, right? That's, that's, and I'm just being honest with you as, you know, as a male, I think this is kind of how we, how we exist, right? But the cool thing was, is then I used to get kind of sneaky with myself and I'd spread it out so it never got too high and I'd have to hold off. Basically, guys, we, we basically do laundry when we run out of clean underwear. That's the, that's the, that's the, that's the awful truth. And the more awful truth is if people start to reverse their underwear. So anyways, that's a whole different conversation. Point being is that I used to do this. It used to drive my wife crazy. Just, just she'd be like, and but she never told me it drove her crazy because it's on my side of the bed. I always had this idea that what's on my side of the bed is my problem. What's on her side of the bed, it's her problem. And this is just how I roll. The other thing too is that I never. I don't know if you guys are going to come into church anymore. If you know this, what your pastor. I never made my bed. I, I don't. I, I, I never make my bed. My wife, she likes to make the bed because, for some reason, when she makes the bed, we have more pillows on the bed after she makes the bed than we sleep with. Right? We only need two pillows to sleep with, but after she makes a bed, we seem to have eight pillows. But the pillows that she puts on her bed are decorative, and I didn't never knew that there was something called decorative pillows. There's, you sleep on it or you don't, right? So one time, I remember, I used a decorative pillow to sleep on, and she was horrified. Like, you don't sleep on decorative. I'm like, what white person thing is this? I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, what are you talking about, right? It's like, what? And then don't even get me started about duvet covers. I don't even know what to say with that, right? Like unbuttoning it and shoving it in, hold, uh, it's, a whole, it's a whole thing. The point being is I didn't realize this frustrated her until one day she said, whenever she calls me honey, I know I'm in trouble. And I, I, I know she's trying to make it, you know, nicer, but it's really a trigger for me. Just, so if you ever call me honey, I know, well, don't call me honey. That's weird. Uh, but it's, it's a trigger. I'm like, uh-oh, what did I do wrong? She's like, honey, you know, it just, it drives me crazy a little bit. If, you know, when you leave your, you know, your, your uh, clothes the side of the bed like that, and it gets, it's a bit of a pile. Right? She says, so, and what, what was great about my wife, what, what great about my wife is, is she finds a solution to She goes, sweetheart, in the closet, there's a laundry basket for you now. So, you know, your dirty clothes, just put in the laundry basket. And, you know, I, I or her, I, like, just so you know, I do my own laundry as well, too. So I don't expect her to do my laundry. She's like, you know, you and I will, will do the laundry, and it's, it's, all, it's all good. I'm like, oh, okay. But I didn't even know that. And so that, after that day, I, I, I started doing that. And guess what? Frustration disappears. I know, a tangent, right? Self-deception. We think that we do things correctly, but perhaps we don't, right? Uh, Peggy goes on to say this. Um, Self-deception has many guises, which also contributes to being difficult to identify. There are more f familiar forms of denial, rationalization, minimalization, right? Minimalization, it's not that big of a deal, right? We all have this idea of self-deception. Self-deception is a set of practices and attitudes, I love this, that hinders a person from making a reliable assessment of their situation. As a consequence, they are unable to appropriately recognize their own agency, free will, choices, and often fails to grasp what is or isn't their, right, uh, their rightful responsibility. So this is what self-deception looks like. Now, of course, you're asking yourself, <laughs> why are we talking about self-deception? Well, this morning, we're going to talk about uh, Israel's departure, you know, from Egypt. But the problem with Israel, as we're going to look at this morning in, in two chapters, is they have deceived themselves, right? So Israel departs Egypt, but are unaware of what they have become. They're not ready to be taught and certainly not ready, to be, not ready to be a light unto the nations. So remember, the book of Exodus is Israel in its rawest form. They don't have the law yet. They don't have the Ten Commandments yet. They don't have anything yet. So what they are is still in its, its rawest form. 
So when I look at the story of Israel at, at this point, what they don't realize is they think they are one thing, but they really are another. So the question we're going to ask ourselves this morning is, what lies hidden in your heart? What lies hidden in your heart? Now, this is, this is kind of actually a really an uncomfortable conversation. Because as I've just said about self-deception, you don't know. Or you deny what is there, or you rationalize what is there, or you minimize what is there. One of the things I'm hearing, especially in, in, in our culture today, is this concept of victimization. There's a lot of great studies and, 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 and just people looking at this, right? This idea of victimization has really been elevated, and, and, and kind of rightfully so, because what you know, every generation does is they look back upon past generations and we go, oh, this was not appropriate, right? This was not okay. And, and again, for much of, of where people come with this, I go, yeah, you know, how we look at the past, how we've behaved in the past, not great, right? But this idea of victimization can be a label that's placed upon things that perhaps may not be as victimized as we think we are. So this idea of rationalization, this idea of what lies hidden in our hearts is really kind of a difficult one. So how do we discover it? As I posted yesterday in our Facebook post, you're not going to like the answer because there's really only one reliable way to test what's in your heart. And we're going to see it this morning. So if you have your Bibles, your electronic devices, uh, turn to Exodus chapter 15. We're going to pick up the story, right? So the story of, of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea has just taken place, right? And Exodus chapter 15, verse 1, by the way, records the first uh, worship song in the Old Testament, right? It's the first one that we have it on record, right? And so... Israel breaks out into worship service at the death of the Egyptians, which seems a little dark, right? But this is kind of a dark period of time, right? So Exodus chapter 15, verse 1 says this. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he's highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. A little on the nose, right? But this is what they are, 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 ex- are kind of uh, excited about, right? Because what God has done is he has vanquished the Egyptians finally. Right? Pharaoh and his army have been destroyed by the hand of God. And so the Israelites on the other side are just ecstatic. And so they break into song. And I've just given you one verse, but if you go in chapter one, uh, chapter 15 there, you'll see the entire song. And it's, it's beautiful and dark. But again, these people have lived in slavery for 430 years. And they're oppressors who have been brutal, who have been vicious. They're finally gone. And this is the last time they have to think or deal with the Egyptians in, in the physical form. The curse of Egypt is still going to go with them, and we'll get to that. just want to point something out to you in verse 20 there. Then Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. It's interesting. This is the first time that Miriam is called this in the Bible. It won't be the last time. And even some prophets will mention this as well too. So it's, fun. it's interesting to see that this is how, the, uh, how Moses records. Now, what's interesting as well too, that Miriam is Moses' sister. But what's interesting is when Moses records this, he doesn't call Miriam his sister in this, in this example because what he's trying to do, and this is what the rabbinic commentary really showed me, is he's trying not to take anything away from Miriam. Right? Being Moses' sister, right? Remember, Miriam is Moses' older sister. Because remember, Miriam guarded Moses as he was in the basket, 
right? When Moses' mother was trying to keep Moses safe. So Miriam is Moses' older sister. But when Moses records this, this moment, he doesn't say, oh, my, my big sister, right? Because he's not trying to take anything away from Miriam here because the ecstaticness, the joy of the reverence of the Lord just breaks up. And so he records this, Miriam the prophet, which I think is such a beautiful, uh, just a beautiful example how God really crosses over gender in regards to who he will use and just in leadership. It's just, again, it's beautiful that even in the book of, of Exodus, just the very beginning of the nation of Israel being formed, this is, this is recorded there. Let's go on. In verse 22, it says this, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? This is going to be the theme of these next two chapters, and this is the theme of what, what's going to happen here. Remember I said to you that nothing reveals something in our hearts except for one mechanism? Well, you're about to see what this mechanism is in. Now, look at God's response to Moses, because this is going to kind of frame these next two chapters. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees. I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Now, what's interesting about this is this is the first instruction that God is going to give Israel. Remember, up until this point in time, there is no law. The only instruction we have up to this point in time is of circumcision. We, we talked about that ew moment. Remember Zipporah with a with a flint knife, just you know, instant circumcision of of, of Moses' son Gershon, which again appalling. But again, don't impose our Western ethics upon a Middle Eastern culture. This is what they did, right? That was the only rule and law that the people had. So God is doing something here. But now look at the word there. I'm going to put them to the test. Now this is important. Because this is not the only test that's going to happen here. There are going to be four tests that the Israelites have to go through, right? And so remember I said to you, how do I know what's in your heart? Well, the answer, and this is one you're not going to like, the only way I truly know what's really in your hearts is by moving out of your comfort zones, by causing some sort of distress to take place in your life. Because in that moment, what's really in there that's what's going to come up. And this is what we're going to see for the nation of Israel. Now let's go to chapter 16, verses 1 to 2. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin. By the way, so on the nose, right? Which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. This is the second time we see this record of grumbling. Now, what's interesting, and D.A. Carson, in his commentary on this, this is what he says, and I think it's kind of important. Despite the miraculous interventions by God that characterize their escape from Egypt, the people do not really trust him. This is really important, right? So, on the one hand, God has, he has done the most, remember I said to you, the ten plagues, as horrific as they were, marked probably the greatest supernatural intervention in the entire Bible. Not even Jesus did this, right? Not even Jesus did what, what, what Yahweh had done in, in, in Israel. 
And, and, and that's not just in, in Egypt, right? As they're fleeing, right? Remember the pillar of, 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 of cloud to give them shade, the pillar of, of flames to give them warmth and, and night to give them light. And then, of course, like all of this takes place, right? But what D.A. Carson really points out, and I think this is really important here, and this is the revealing of their hearts, they, yet, they don't really trust God yet. Right? They don't really trust Yahweh, and this is, this is going to become evident in, in all they say and do. Now look at verse 3. The Israelites said to them, if, we had only, if, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us unto the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. This is classic children behavior. Right? If, if, if you ever work with children or have younger siblings, they always exaggerate themselves to kind of get a point across, right? Like, um, if you've ever had children, they will say something like this, I'm so hungry I could, you know, eat a horse, or I'm so hungry I'm going to die, or there's no food in this house to eat. Now, I have five older sisters, and there's something you used to say that always used to perplex me. And they used to always say something like this, and usually it was Sunday morning as they were trying to get dressed for church or whatever, we used to dress up back in the day. Uh, and, and so they used to say something like this, I have nothing to wear. Now, I knew that was a lie because their closets and their dressers were always overflowing with clothing. And so my sisters used to borrow each other's clothes, you know, if, if they would fit and all that. I remember huge arguments with, you know, one borrowing somebody else's article of clothing and perhaps staining it or not giving it back or cleaning it. Oh, that was a whole different thing, right? Remember, I'm... I have sisters. I understand this whole thing, right? So these, we use exaggeration to emphasize the small hurt or small inconvenience. Well, look what the Israelites say. We sat around, like, with this, this, this complaint, it's almost as if they're, like, lounging on chairs and there's platters of food. Like, they were slaves. They worked themselves to the bone. From sunup to sundown, they worked themselves. There was never pots of meat. And by the way, this concept of pots of meat, I actually kind of, I actually kind of had to go into some commentaries. Like, pots of meat? This is, this is an Egyptian dish. It was kind of like, like, like a beef soup, right? They didn't just have pots of meat. It was like a soup, right? That's how they cooked meat with water. They boil it. And again, you had to boil water to keep it, to, you know, to purify it as well, too. And so they'd, then they'd put meat, whatever meat in it, and they would, they would cook it. And again, soup feeds more people than just simply meat. So you put, you know, meat and then vegetables and you got a good soup, right? So it's interesting that they say here that we, there, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death, right? Again, what are they saying, right? Remember, at the, uh, <laughs> uh, time and time again, in the, in, in the plagues, also in the desert, also after they get across the Red Sea, they're worshiping Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh's so great. Yahweh's so great. But it's always interesting when we are hungry, right? Hangry. You know, I have a daughter who shall remain unnamed. She gets hangry like no other human being I've ever met, right? Like, you know that Snickers bar commercial? I related to it. And I didn't say it's about my daughter, but I, like, I think, but see, she, in her, in her defense, she gets it from me. I... I, I, I can be a little hangry as well, too. If I get hungry, I can feel, I just feel it, right? So what's interesting about the Israelites here is they get in the desert. And remember, just, just to be clear here, it's not as if they don't have food with them. Remember the Bible records, they have herds of animals with them. You're hungry. 
It's kind of like a Happy Meal that's coming along with you, right? Just kill a goat or a sheep. There you got food, right? Make own pots of meat. So what's this complaint really revealing? It's what D.A. Carson says. They don't trust Yahweh. So how do I know what's in their hearts? Is a point of discomfort their hearts are revealed. Now, look at God's response. I think this is probably one of those greatest verses in all of the, uh, of, of the Old Testament. Look at God's response. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven to you. You ever see that uh, kid's movie, um, Meatballs from the Sky, or, or something like that, right? That I can't remember what it's called. Meatballs, basically all of meat. I think that's an awesome thing. If I could have meatballs from the sky, I love meatballs. So meatballs from the sky sounds, you know, dangerous, but man, I'd be out there with a basket. I would just like, I'd freeze them all up. I'd love, I, I love me some meatballs, right? So when God says to, to the Israelites, I'm going to rain down bread from the sky. This is manna, of course. We know the story of this, right? But this is the first time they're hearing it, right? God is going to provide for them in the most miraculous way, right? But again, this isn't without God's instruction. So in verse 22 to 23 uh, of chapter 16, look what it says. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers, which is about 1.5 kilograms, uh, for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it till the morning. Remember, Sabbath is not something a slave really gets. Slaves don't get days off. Israelites work seven days a week, right? They work seven days a week. The only people I know who have this type of mentality is not retail people, it's farmers. I, I, I work for a farmer and... He works seven days a week. He works holidays, right? The cows need to be milked on Christmas Day, right? They need to be milked on, on New Year's Day, on, on Good Friday. Like, they just need to be milked, right? He's the hardest per- working person I've ever met because he doesn't get a day off because animals don't get holidays, right? So slaves don't get holidays, right? But what is God doing here? He is slowly teaching them something that they need to understand. Remember, in the book of Genesis, on the seventh day, It's called the Sabbath. But remember, it's the only day of the week that God calls holy. Now, holy isn't something that's supernatural. It just means set aside for God. Right? Set aside for God. So by God God giving bread, manna from heaven, he also says this, you can gather for six days, but on the sixth day, gathers twice as much. Now, remember, some of the people in this story gather on a fifth day twice as much, and it gets rotten the next day. It's like they're testing God, right? And again, the whole point of, this, of Moses talking about this is that he's trying to show the true hearts of Israel. Now let's go to chapter 17. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin. <laughs> again, I, I chuckle because, you know, what a great name, right? Traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They came to Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Remember, we've been here. This is the second time. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Right? Again, it's Moses' fault. Quiet, Moses said. Again, remember I made this joke to you before and again, if you don't remember it. As pastors, we have jokes that, you know, it's not funny to normal people, but as pastors, you know, one of the jokes we talk about is we never want churches like Moses, right? We never want to be a pastor like Moses because Moses had to deal with the most uh, cantankerous, complaining, grumbling people, right? Um, As pastors, we know we have some of those people in our congregation and we try to love them as much as we can. And by loving them, 
there's home ways we deal with it. Ignoring your emails is one way. Oh, by the way, if I, if I haven't answered your email, I'll get to it. You're, you're not one of those people. But look, like, 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 like I love when Moses is there, quiet. And, and in the Hebrew, it's not like, oh, quiet. Like Moses is losing his his poop. He, he, he is losing, he's losing his mind here because he's like, okay, these people are driving me crazy, right? So remember, Moses, remember, God says to Moses, Moses, I want you to lead the people, but God hasn't told Moses yet the kind of people he's going to lead yet, right? Which is good because if Moses had known this, back in the burning bush, he would have kept on walking, right? Quiet, Moses replied, why are you complaining against me? Why are you, what? Testing the Lord, right? So in this moment, they don't have water again. Remember, God provided them water, Right? But now the difference with this water here is that it's bitter. They can't drink it. Right? So Anthony uh, Billington, again, brings up this point here in his commentary. and says this. In the Exodus story between the crossing of the Red Sea, uh, of the sea and arrival at Sinai is a period of about two months, during which God provides for the needs of his people in the desert and protects them from threats. In this case, the trek from the sea to Sinai is not a punishment but an opportunity for the people to learn what their ongoing welfare will depend on, obedience and trust in the Lord. See, the only way I really know what's in your hearts is when your lives are turned upside down, is when you're out of your comfort zones. Remember, there's an old saying, an old proverb that says, always listen to an angry person because they'll tell the truth. Right? We'll always kind of like, oh, it's nice, it's fine, it's fine. An angry person, they will tell you what they really think. And in that moment, listen to them because they're finally telling you the truth. Right? And so what's interesting here is that what the people are really showing them is that they're showing that, you know, apart from what, what God did in, the, in, in, in Egypt, well, apart from what God did in, in the Red Sea and all that, they really don't trust him. They really don't even love him. They're not even at that point yet. So now let's go on. Look at verse 7. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord amongst us or not? Again, by the way, the, the pillar of fire and the, cloud, uh, and the cloud, it's still with them. Right? But look what they're saying here. Because I'm not getting what I want, they sound like whiny children. Right? So what are they saying? Is God with us or not? Right? Is God with us or not? What happens to you when something in your life does not go the way you expected? What happens to you when you sin or fall short of what you believe God has for you? Does God love me? Is God with me? Does God really care about me? Right? These are the questions we ask. And, and the thing is, the thing of that is, is what these moments reveal are really what's in our hearts. Remember, I, again, I use this all the time, but just to remind you, remember I told you about the Eustas, right? The people I meet out, out in my life, people I used to go to church, I used to believe in God, right? But I don't anymore. I'm always curious to talk to the Eustas because I'm always curious, what was it that made you leave your faith? What made it, what, what happened that made you disbelieve in God? And I think, like, I can't quantify this because I, I don't make them fill out surveys, obviously. But anecdotally, I'd say like 98% of the people, they'll respond with some sort of hurt or pain in their life. That God didn't come through with them in the way they expected. That there is a moment in your life of, of suffering, of pain, of, of, of needing something from God, and they prayed. And, and again, 
a lot of people, these things are, are, are not wrong. Like if someone says to me, I used to believe in God, but I prayed that he'd let me win the lottery and I didn't win the lottery, therefore I don't believe in God. It's nothing like that. It's like a sickness. I financially like, they can't pay their rent or even buy food or, or, or just something that doesn't seem above and beyond what God would do. And God doesn't respond the way they expect it. And so they, at that moment, decide either God doesn't exist or God doesn't care about them. And any God that doesn't care about them, I don't care about that God either. And they depart. Well, Israel is like that person, right? They had this claim, this idea of who God is. But again, time and time again, they're going to respond in such a way where they're like, well, I don't, I, I'm just going to not really believe in God. Now let's go on to verse 8 to 9 to the fourth test. So uh, verse 8 to 9 says this. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Remember, this is the place where they didn't have any water. Moses said to Joshua, by the way, this is the first time that we are introduced to this person named Joshua. And what was interesting, actually, what I picked up here is something kind of interesting here, is that Joshua doesn't know yet, and spoiler alert for those of you who don't know this, but Moses doesn't get to go to the promised land. It's Joshua who becomes the leader of Israel, not Aaron, not Miriam, but Joshua. So what's interesting here is God is actually prepping Joshua to take this role, and, and, and it's actually kind of interesting. Now, watch this. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to the fight that it, uh, go out to fight the Malachites. Tomorrow I'll stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. Remember, you know the story, right? The Amalekites and Israel fight. Now remember, this is the first time that the Israelites are in our Remember I said to you back in, in, in a couple of chapters ago that the Israelites leave Egypt like an army? Well, like an army is different than actually being an army because you haven't actually fought anybody yet, right? And even the Egyptians... God fought them for you. So the Amalekites are actually the first time that the Israelites are actually going to have to be an army. Now, what's interesting about this is, is, is some kind of fascinating. You ever been asked to do something that you don't feel qualified to do? Just so you know it, and, and as a pastor, that's every day, right? Pre-pandemic, remember? We shut, we, church had shut down. I'd, I was not qualified to be a pandemic pastor. I had no idea what to do, right? How are we going to, as a, as a church, continue to be connected online? Thank goodness for Ken and Brock and, 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 and you know, the, the worship team, Talia and everybody. Like, we came together and we figured it out. And again, people say to me, well, you know, you're stream. I don't care. The fact is we were doing it, right? We actually figured this out, right? And, and then we had that bump with YouTube and we figured it out. Like, we just, we've been adapting this now, right? And again, you can, like, you can say that our stream was whatever it was. I, I, I would just remind you, we did something. We had something take place, right? Everyone asked to do something in your work or in school or in just relationships that you don't feel qualified to do. What's your response? I'm sorry, I'm not qualified to do that. Or we find an excuse. What's interesting about this, and this is what the rabbinic commentary pointed out with Joshua. Joshua is asked to go fight, fight Amalekites, and the Amalekites, again, just a little fun fact, they're, they're a warrior tribe. They're not as big as Israel, but Israel, by the way, doesn't have any weapons. They're farmers at this point in time. They're not an army. What is Joshua going to go fight them with? Pitch, like, sticks and, 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 and like, pitchforks, whatever. You, like, that's all that they have. They don't have weapons. They don't have swords. Remember, the only armor that they saw is now at the bottom of the Red Sea. So Joshua is tasked with this thing of saying, go fight the Amalekites. Joshua couldn't say, oh, by the way, I don't have, can, you, can you give me a sword or a spear or some sharp object? Or 
By the way, I've never fought enemy before. What are we supposed to do? But Joshua doesn't do that. Look what the next verse is, right? Verse 10, the first part of verse 10 says this. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. Oh. This is every pastor's dream. A volunteer just does what they're told without asking, without doing a whole bunch of things. Now, just to be clear, I love the volunteers of UCC. I'm so delighted to work with them. Um, but the fact is, like, like somebody who just does what they're supposed to because they're asked to, right? I, I would never use the word ordered. But Joshua doesn't do that. See, this is what sets Joshua aside from everybody else. The Israelites, they keep complaining, grumbling, quarreling. The Bible tells us that. Joshua, go fight the Amalekites. Oh, by the way, I don't have any weapons. So pick up some rocks and some sticks. I think I saw a log back there. And those pitchforks look pretty good. Use that. Joshua's like, okay. And he goes and, do it and does it. And by the way, he wins. Right? He wins. Now look at verse 14. I think this is interesting as well too. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it. Again, God is coaching, preparing Joshua to be. Remember, when Israel crosses over the Jordan into Israel, the geographic Israel, all Joshua is going to do is not fight. What Israel doesn't need is a priest who Moses is. They need a general, which is what Joshua will become. So when Moses, when Joshua crosses over the Jordan, what's the first thing they encounter? Jericho. What's the next thing after that? Like tribe after tribe, Joshua. And again, this is Joshua's training in, in the school of God. But it wasn't training because he was qualified. It wasn't training because he knew what he was doing. The difference between Joshua and everybody else was trust and obedience. Joshua doesn't complain. He doesn't go, Moses, I don't know what I'm doing here. Moses, are you crazy? Moses, we're all going to die. Joshua goes and he fights the Amalekite because Moses asked him. This reveals uh, Joshua's heart. Now, let's go on. We're almost done here. Verses 15 to 16, and this is how uh, chapter 17 ends off. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the the Lord will be at war against the Malachites from generation to generation. This isn't the last time we're going to hear the Malachites in the Old Testament. But every time the Malachites appear, God whoops them. Like like, like God is not going to tolerate anybody going up against his plan. Now, let's go back to this here. What lies hidden in your heart? Well, the reality is, how do you find it, right? But the reality is also is, is how do you get rid of it? Remember I said to you, self-deception is something we all live with. But there is a cure for self-deception. And that's the truth. But the problem is, how do you get to the truth? Well, the best way to get to the truth is from suffering. Remember I said yesterday in our Facebook post, you're not going to like the answer. See, in our times of suffering, in the times of pain, in the times of discomfort, what we really are, who we really are, is exposed. And see, God knows that. This is why the rabbinic commentators call this the foretesk. Because four times Israel is tested, and four times they kind of fail the test. Remember I said this last week? Israel leaves Egypt, but Egypt is still in their hearts. Right? And this is kind of important, because remember, through the ten plagues, Moses makes sure to point out Pharaoh's heart. Well, now Pharaoh's no longer the problem. The problem is Israel. Right? So look at this here. In each time here, 
Four times Moses, he's writing the story, he records this. And he records this testing. Four times, right? Four times Israel is tested. Four times God is saying to them, make sure you understand what's happening here. Make sure you trust me. Make sure you understand this. And each time, what's their response, right? Each time, what's their response? Grumbling, right? Each time they grumble and they quarrel because this is what is in their hearts. This is who they are. And God needs them to understand that because when they get to Mount Sinai, they're not prepared yet for God. So at Mount Sinai, what's going to happen? God is going to give them the first kernel. Kernel. Kernel is a mix between grain and kernel. Kernel. Um, hashtag Pastor Roger said that. Uh, so it's the first grain or kernel of the law. And the law is broken down into the Ten Commandments. And, oh, I'm so excited to go through that because just so you know, you don't know the Ten Commandments. You think you do, but you don't, and you'll see there. Anyways, you'll get to that. But what's interesting is every time that they're tested, they grumble. Now, what's interesting is I kind of went through and I went, okay, what word do they use in the Hebrew for grumble? Now, I found out that the word they use is a word called loon. Now, it's – I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right because I, I – and take Hebrew, it's, but it's loon or loan. So whichever way you want to pronounce it, I'm okay. But what's interesting about this word is what it means. Now, just watch this, okay? There's two parts to this word. The first part of the word, it means to dwell or inhabit. And there's, there's, there's examples of it in a way that you wouldn't consider it grumbling. But the second part of it is a grudge or complaint that comes from within. So here's the implication. There are two parts of this word. Put them together. They paint a picture of someone who has become immovable and speaks from the toxic part of the spirit. See, what you have to understand about grumbling is it's different than actually um, saying what is wrong with something. So one of the things I talk about and one of the things I say to my leaders is we kind of I try to make sure that our leadership team, whether it's our site care team or elders team, is it, we, we, we kind of work as a meritocracy. And what I mean by meritocracy is best idea wins, right? It's, it's never about, yes, just so you know, I have a lot of crazy ideas. And my staff or my, my team will kind of go, well, just, they, and they have, well, some of them are not very nice, but some of them are pretty nice. Like, well, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe. I don't know, I sound like Jane Leno there. Anyways, like there's, like some people have different ways of kind of approaching it. But really for me, it's just like, hey, what do you guys think about this idea? And it's like, oh, okay, you know, like, yeah. As a matter of fact, this morning we're celebrating communion. Well, this came out of a conversation I had with, 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 a, with a couple. I was like, oh, yeah, you know, we haven't done it for a long time. And, you know, no excuses. This is something we can do, right? It's the best idea. Communion is a part of who we are. We do we, pre-pandemic, once a month we'd celebrate communion. It's, it's important, right? Passover, we talked about this. So it's always about best idea wins. How can we make UCC a better place within the values of who we are? Well, the idea of grumbling isn't not about being a better place. It's, the, it's more about being stubborn. The other phrase that the Bible uses, stiff-necked. Now, what's interesting about stiff-necked is, is not that, like, if you've ever had a stiff neck, the thing about, about stiff-necked is either you can't look down, you can't look up, you can't look side to side, which makes walking kind of difficult, really, which makes seeing other things kind of difficult, right? Worship is extension right? Humility, down, right? Side to side, right? That's the idea of stiff-neckedness. This is the concept of grumbling. The, imp the implication is that someone comes to a place of rebellion and refuses to leave. 
They now speak words of self-interest, hurt, and actively inter- uh, resist God. Now, here's what you need to understand about grumbling. Grumbling is about your perspective of what is wrong. One of my mentors in Bible college, Dr. Ron Kidd, he used a phrase, he, used, he taught church history. I love church history. I love history, period. But he's taught church history one and two, which I love his class. But one of the things he said at the very early part of the class, which I always remembered was, he says, if you see a need, you're called to meet it. Which, by the way, is a very uncomfortable statement saying. It's, it's one thing to say, hey, this is a need that we have as a church or as a community we're not meeting. It's altogether a different thing to say, here's a need I see, and I'm going to be a solution to the need. See, grumbling just says, hey, this is what we're not doing right. People say to me all the time, this is what's wrong with the church. And just so you know, whatever you think is wrong with the church, my list is probably double yours. But the only reason why I don't talk about it, because every time I say what's wrong with the church, I am then called to fix it within our little community. Not in general, because I don't call, I don't do other people's churches, just within UCC. See, but what grumbling does is, hey, that's what's wrong. Here's what's wrong. That's what's wrong. But you're not moving. You're immovable. But a lot of times, the parts that we say what is wrong, it's more about self-interest as well, too. It's something that affects us, right? So m- remember, for the month of, uh, of November, we were collecting winter jackets and winter clothes for the shelters. Why? Because my wife, who was used running the vaccination clinics there, came to me and said, hey, just so you know, these, these, these shelters, they don't have any winter clothes. Because of the pandemic, people have not been donating clothes. So I thought, you know what? Our small community, let's do this. Let, let's, let's. And we, we've, we've donated like bag after bag of, of winter clothes for these shelters, right? It's a need. So my wife could have come home and said to me, man, these shelters, they don't have any winter clothes. It's terrible. No, and she, she instead said, these shelters don't have winter clothes. Do you think UCC might be able to do something? I'm like, ah, I, I think we could. Absolutely. Right? So grumbling, though, just sees a wrong, but doesn't do anything to actually fix it. Uh, Dr. Shani Zoroff, who also kind of has a rabbinic commentary as well, too, says this. The opening of the wilderness wandering story in Exodus uses light word to underline the process of reciprocal testing between Israel and God as preparation for the Sinai event. Remember, in two chapters from here, Israel is going to come to the mountain of God. And God is going to meet them, and their response is just going to be horrific. But they're not quite ready yet for the the commandments. They're not ready to be in relationship with Yahweh yet. Why? Because they have Egypt in their hearts still. So what I think is so fascinating about what Dr. Uh, Zoreff says is rabbinic commentaries see the four tests we just saw there as a way of preparing themselves to meet God. You ever come to church on a Sunday morning uh, and just you sit in church but you're really not prepared to meet God? Either there's unconfessed sin or there's just, again, the busyness. And, you know, for those of you who have kids, like, you know, you know, kids and winter clothing is always a special treat uh, because it's like, oh, boots and gloves and hats and mitts and all right, right? It's just, it, you know, it can, be, it can be that, right? So when you sit down in church, so one of the reasons we do a call to worship at the beginning is just a way of saying, okay, deep breaths, let's prepare to meet God. Let's prepare to worship, to sing praises, to create space in our spirits so that we can receive and hear from God. Well, God realizes this, so Israel has these four tests because they're not ready to meet them. They're not ready to meet who God is. 
You know, I love it when uh, Paul is actually talking about this in, to the church in Corinth. He uses this story of, of the wilderness. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. He's using that metaphorically, right? They all ate the same spiritual food, manna, and drank the same spiritual drink, the water that God provided twice. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. But now look what he says in verse 12. If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. You know, as humanity uh, looks to you know, popula- uh, populate the space. Trust me, wait, wait for where I'm going here. So there's all these projects about, you know, how do we send people to Mars to live on Mars or different planets, right? Well, one of the things we have to realize is we have to send trees or we have to kind of have vegetation. Did you know that there was a uh, project that had trees planted in those uh, dome things and people had to live amongst them for like a year, right? Did you know what they found out? Is the trees they planted grew, but then fell over. And they're like, wait, what? When do trees fall over? And of course, it wasn't because they didn't have enough dirt. They knew how, how deep the root system needed to go. They knew all of that, but they couldn't figure out why the trees fell over. And one a botanist realized is the reason the trees didn't fall over is because they didn't have any wind. Because the trees didn't actually have strength to wind, and they just fell over. And they realized that this whole biosphere thing they're trying to figure out didn't take into account the resistance that's necessary to create strength. See, suffering in your life, sin in your life, is what creates resistance to what happens in our lives. So Paul says something interesting. He says, listen, if you think you're, if you think you're standing firm, be careful. You don't fall. And when I read this, I thought about this, this experiment, the biosphere, and the trees falling over. Why? Resistance is what strengthens your root systems. Nothing reveals doubt and mistrust better than suffering. If in times of suffering, your response is to curse God, and I don't mean like, hey, screw you or whatever it would be. Like, like not that kind of cursing, but just unbelief or, or anger or like, oh, God, how come you didn't provide? Oh, God, why didn't you do this? Why, oh, God, why is my life uncomfortable? Or, God, why do I still struggle with this sin? Why don't you just remove it from me? These are all kind of um, languages of our mistrust, distrust of who God is. The writer of Hebrews uses this as an example as well, too. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Grumbling reveals a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from God. Remember that Hebrew word, lone? Immovable toxic. There are so many immovable toxic people in church and they just don't even realize it. You know what's about grumbling too? It's very infectious. If I know if there's one grumbler, there's definitely whoever they hang out with are all grumblers as well too. You know why? Because grumblers love to grumble. And grumblers love people who go, yeah, yeah. You ever been a part of a church split? As soon as I say that, some of you are like, ooh, yeah, I've been a part of that. It was not a nice thing. It always starts off with somebody saying, well, you know what? This is what's wrong with the pastor. This is what's wrong with the church. And just to be clear, <laughs> the list of what's wrong with me is way more than you would, like, you would care to know. The list of what's wrong with you, same. But a grumbler doesn't actually do anything about it. They just point it out, gather people around them, and that's when the toxic part of their spirits just speak out. Right? 
Now look what, look, look, the, sort of the writer of Hebrews says, the testing in the wilderness, what does it reveal? Sinful, unbelieving hearts that turn away from God. Thomas Watson says, murmuring, grumbling, often ends in cursing. I think that's such a kind of an interesting way of understanding it. So here's what you need to understand about grumbling. Grumbling is the process revealing of doubt and unbelief, self-deception and rebellion. So doubt and unbelief, this is what doubt and unbelief is, right? It's outcome-based faith. Now, what's outcome-based faith again? If you believe that God's going to answer all your prayer requests. People live this type of faith without realizing it. And the Eustas grew up this way. The Eustas were told, I, hmm. you know, your Instagram feed, you'll see like churches advertising and there's some, there's a church in town and uh, they have like excerpts from their sermon clips. I'm always curious what other pastors are preaching and teaching. I'm just, you know, you know just professional curiosity, I guess. Well, this one church, this pastor said something in his little video clip and I thought, oh, that just makes me so uncomfortable. And just so you know, I, I, know, I don't comment. I don't, whatever. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that person. But the, first, the, the pastor said, and I, I understand their intent. The pastor said this, said, prayer or your words will change, will, will touch the supernatural to change the natural. Your words in prayer will touch the supernatural to change the natural. Now, what he was basically saying is prayer is a way of, of changing the natural. Now, just to be clear, we believe prayer does that, but we don't understand the mechanism, and we also acknowledge that doesn't happen that way. Remember I used that phrase when I taught on prayer before? It's, um, I can't remember if it's Kierkegaard or Lewis, but basically they say this, I don't pray to tell something, God something he doesn't know. I pray to, so that God may change something in me. Prayer is not about saying, hey, God, by the way, did you notice that I'm running out of money? I don't, I'm single. I'm losing my hair. I don't know. Whatever. I, like, I, I just, I, like, God is aware of all these things. But what prayer is really meant, especially how the Jewish people understand prayer, it's about internal change on the person. So when I heard this person say this, I thought, oh, the problem I think about this, and again, is that we can, we, we can be lulled as Christians into this idea that if you pray for or ask for something of God, and if he doesn't respond the way you expect, where you're left with a couple of options. One is that God doesn't love you because he's not listening to your prayer, or two, God's not real. I would love to propose to you this door number three. And in door number three is the mystery of who God is. This is where I think evangelicals can learn from Catholics, Catholicism. Catholicism has enshrined in its theology the mysterium, the Latin phrase, the mystery of God, which I think is beautiful. Because as much as I've learned about God, as much as I love God's word, and you guys know I'm more of a Bible teacher than I am anything else, there's so much I don't understand. Just, just, I just freaking don't understand things. I don't understand the pain, the suffering. I don't understand, just I don't understand. But I also kind of say, you know what, Lord? You're an infinite God, and I'm a finite being. I'm an insect next to you. So I get that I, there's so much I don't understand. That's the mystery of the mysterium of who God is. So what we have to realize is what grumbling does is it reveals doubt and unbelief. It's outcome-based faith. It's unfulfilled expectations. There's that idea again. The other part of it, too, is self-deception. Victim, scarcity mentality. Here's what I mean by scarcity mentality. You ever ask God to do something for you, provide something for you, and he doesn't do it? Right? And again, a lot of our prayers in, in this regards can be kind of financial. And again, as students, I remember, I, I've done this before, 
I lived on ramen for like, I think, two and a half weeks, right? I, I, I don't think I ate meat in all that time. And trust me, I am not a vegetarian. As I've mentioned before, you know, I'm Indian, you know, and, you know, like dots, not feathers, Indian kind of, right? You know, so I'm Indian. And Indian people, we're looking for more meat to eat. So when you see Indian people at, at a zoo, they're not looking at the zebras thinking they look beautiful. They're like, I can make a curry out of that. I just, I just, you know, we just, we like meat, right? We just, you know, and I don't mean to offend anybody. Just, I'm, you know, so in two and a half weeks of me not eating meat, Lord, why don't you love me anymore? <laughs> Lord, I know you rain down manna, but let's rain down spaghetti or meatballs from heaven. Like I just, you know, I've had enough carbs for, for a good long time, right? But this is this idea of scarcity mentality. Oh, God doesn't have it. He's, he, you know, he's short on cash or he's short on miracles or he's short on power. But what's interesting is grumbling reveals that. If you actually believe that God can't meet your need, you kind of start to live your life out as if that God doesn't care about your need. And this is what grumbling reveals. And again, unloved, unforgivable. Lord, please forgive me of this thing I've done a thousand times and perhaps I'll do again. The hi- remember I said, and again, I always say remember I said that, right? But I have to say that it's the habitual sins that really break us. It's the habitual sins. It's the things we struggle with internally, externally, behaviors, attitudes, mindsets, thought life. These are the ones the enemy knows that trips us up because these are the ones that we just feel unloved, unforgivable for. But again, this is a revelation of what you really believe. Do you believe what the Bible says about forgiveness? Is your God big enough to forgive your sin? Is the cross great enough an event to actually redeem you from what you are and what you will be in the future? This is what it reveals for us. And finally, rebellion. Rebellion is internal, external. It is opposition to God, but it's also opposition to growth, right? You know, what's interesting about the book of James is we know the first part of the book of James. So the book of James, actually, what I love about James is how his mind works. And so James, younger brother of Jesus, um, remember, in the resurrection appearances, the Bible records that Jesus appeared to James. The Bible doesn't tell us about the conversation, but I kind of wish it's something like Jesus appeared to James. Ta-da! Right? Like, remember, the Bible records that only Jesus' mother was at the cross. Right? If any of Jesus' siblings or other family members, well, his aunt and uncle Clopas and, and Cleophas were there as well too, but that was it. How much do you hate your sibling? to not show up to their death. And remember, it didn't just happen. There was days that took place. Jesus was, was arrested. This would have made its way to, to his family. And at the cross, James was not recorded as there. This is why Jesus has to have a resurrection appearance, appearance for James. Because what are we hearing about James? James is then in the upper room with Jesus' brothers and sisters. So James, in the book of James, James chapter 1, we know about the first process, right? We know about the first cycle. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. This is the first cycle. We know this one. It's a very famous one. But James doesn't leave it there. This is a second cycle as well, too. This is in verse 14 and 15. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. The beautiful thing about this, and this is the Greek, uh, Greek I know, right? The drag us away is the image they have of this is of a, of, of, of a ferocious animal with its, with its, with its mouth 
clamped around a limb, dragging you, right? Like this is something the Old Testament, uh, the the New Testament, the Gospels understand. This is this is not like this is not metaphorical. They've seen this happen, right? They know this can happen, but this is what James says: the desires that are within us can do to us as well too. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So there's two types of growth here, right? There's two types of people here, right? But what's important here is James highlights something. See, the first cycle, if you endure suffering, you're complete. See, what grumbling really shows us is how incomplete we are in our faith. Because look at the second cycle, right? What's the second cycle give to us? It's spiritual death. James is not talking here about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. Grumbling leads to spiritual death. This immovable, this toxic piece of us, it's what kills us spiritually. And this is why, this is why it's so dangerous in the church because there's people in the church who grumble and complain but do not realize that they're actually spiritually dead. The worst thing I could ever say about a Christian They refuse to grow. They stop learning. They stop being disciples of Jesus. See, the word disciple isn't a one-time label. See, one of the things we've we've absolutely, Western culture has totally made a mistake on is the ideas that are associated with salvation. Salvation isn't a label. It's not a one-time event. This is why the whole uh, prayer of salvation, the say, say the sinner's prayer, and all these things that came out of the Billy Graham revivalist movement of the early, uh, late 60s, early 70s was so detrimental to Western Christianity, to Gentiles, because we think that we say a sinner's prayer and we're saved. Salvation is a process. It's a process of failing. It's a process of of. of, of, of of succeeding, it's a process of growth. And in growth, failure is a part of growth. So what happens is, and what takes place is, is what James says to us, is there's two types of growth. The first growth is of endurance in suffering. And that kind of growth makes us complete. Remember the trees and the biosphere that fall over? Wind to the trees is what strengthens their roots. It gives grip against hurricanes, against strong winds, right? A couple of days ago, there was a lot of wind blowing through. It's just like, just, right? It's like, oh, I see the wind. But guess what? The trees in my backyard, thankfully, didn't fall over the house. Why? Their roots had dug deep. Well, Christians are like those trees in the biosphere, a little, and they're blah. That's not a theological term, by the way. And I, I you know, I, I hate to hit, think how that came across. I don't know. I, I just let's not repeat that. Although I really want to do it again. Okay, but the point simply is, James tells us the different kinds of growth. Because look what he says here, right? Um, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drags away. These desires give birth to sinful an- uh, actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, just like endurance grows, sin unchecked grows. If you're a grumbler and a complainer, whether you're here or online or watching this later date, I just want you to know this is symptomatic of spiritual death. By the time you get to grumbling and complaining, your spiritual death is close at hand because all of this has happened internally and finally the exertion of it. Remember I said to you, worship is an external expression of an internal reality. Grumbling is an external expression of an internal reality. I'm not a doctor, nor do I play one on TV, but I am somebody who is an acute observer of spiritual death. 
and I'd say in the Western church there, there are spiritually dead Christians, not because of anything they've done, but because they have not grown, and they're crumblers. So what God was trying to show to the Israelites by the four tests before they get to Mount Sinai is, just please observe what's in your heart. Right? Please observe what's in your heart. Because unless you understand that, unless you, give, unless you really get that, you're not going to grow. See, what I think is interesting here, the sins, habitual and otherwise, are the ones that wound and shame us. But these are exactly what God needs to use to reveal us. He knows that they exist within us, but can't grow us until we acknowledge them. We can't argue with what pains us deeply. Here's what I mean by this. And this is why I keep coming back to it. Because when I hear people talk to me as a pastor about, about what they feel separates them from God, this is what I've heard over the last several years time and time again. Can God forgive me? Will God love me? Will God still forgive me? It's repetitive sins. It's habitual sins. And so what's interesting is, is that the enemy knows that. And do you know what's interesting too what the enemy knows is how our brain works. What our brain works is when we create neural pathways, something becomes commonplace. And so asking for forgiveness for something once, we feel it. Asking for forgiveness for something a second time, not as much. And third and fourth and fifth and, and again, depending on how long you've suffered with this, You become numb to God's grace. Remember I said to you, what enslaves you is what you refuse to accept forgiveness and grace for. What you refuse to accept forgiveness and grace for is what you feel numb to. Right? How often do you ask for forgiveness for something and you just feel like the words sound hollow? They just, they just they don't have any power. They don't have any meaning. There's nothing emotional about it. And then in that moment, you start having the disconnect between you and God. And brick by brick, the enemy uses that and builds a barrier between you and God. God never said to you, oh, by the way, I'll forgive you of your sin five times, ten times. But after that, pff, you are on your own. I'm glad we don't serve a creator like that. I'm glad the scriptures say us very clearly, right? What does Paul say? Every morning, every morning I take up my cross. Every morning I seek your mercies anew. Every morning. Why? Because every morning you need to because the day before you have messed up somehow. The four tests show Israel, even though they claim Yahweh as God, they do not love him yet. See, as Christians, we can say, we believe in God. I believe in God as a mental ascent. I believe in God. I believe God exists. I believe God loves, lives somewhere. I believe God is somewhere, somewhere is doing something. But that belief means nothing unless it's tested. Your entire physical life is a test for heaven. It really is. Every decision you make, every decision about what you do with your time, your talents, your treasure... Every decision you do about, your, about forgiveness and receiving forgiveness, asking for forgiveness for whatever it is that you struggle with, pains you. And just to be clear, what you think you're messing with now, remember I told you about age and stage? You, don't, you have no idea what the future holds. Because there's a new addiction, new ha habit that you haven't even figured out yet that's going to be right around the corner. 
And I just need to say to you, your God is too small. Your gospel is too small. If you don't realize the infinite love of who God has, has for us, right? This is why Paul writes, again, comical as, as comical as Paul gets, because Paul doesn't get very comical. But Romans chapter 8, what can separate us from the love of God? Neither height nor depth, tall people, short people. Neither, you know, uh, width. I don't know. We make whatever you want there, right? But again, he goes through this list. You go, okay, right? But then he puts this line at the very end there, and this is the comical part. Nothing in all creation. It's, just, it's Paul's trying to say, by the way, dummies, if you haven't figured it out, let me just put this last line in there. Nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God. So what can separate you from the love of God? You listening to the, eyes of the uh, lies of the enemy. Israel's marching off into the wilderness. Woo, Yahweh's with us. But in four tests, two months, that, that, that claim is shown to be false. That love, non-existent. That trust, not there. And again, as, as, as much as you look at Israel and kind of go, wow, those dummies, I am that person. I am Israel in that situation. Because there's times in my life where I, like, I've said this to you very honestly. Again, pre-pandemic, I didn't know how UCC was going to survive over the pandemic. We've never done it before. We're a small church. We like small church. But I didn't know. Right? And again, it's just this kind of revelation of, of, of what is in my heart is revealed by times of suffering. We're almost done here. I love this quote by A.W. Tozer. By the way, if you're ever looking for a devotional, anything by Tozer. Right? I love what he says here. When I understand that everything happening to me is to make me more Christ-like, it resolves a great deal of anxiety. I love that anxiety piece of it. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm very anxious before God. I'm anxious in ways I don't even want to confess to you. When I understand that everything happening to me is to make me more Christ-like, it resolves a great deal of anxiety. All the pain, all the hurt, all the sin, all the things you go through is wind blowing you at you as a tree to create strength in your roots so that you will stand and you will grow. I usually end off with a uh, Pauline verse at the end, but I think Peter's got a better handle on this one. First Peter chapter 1, verse 6 to 7. So be truly glad. I love that word truly because it's not just simply a, a kind of, hey, it's true. It's, the word truly comes from the Greek word aletheia, which is a tough, discoverable truth. So be truly glad. There is a wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. That's it, isn't it? Right? How many trials have you gone through? Well, I'm 12 yesterday, yeah. You have no idea what's going to happen today, and you have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. Oh, by the way, fun fact, that word many, it's, it's in a, um, and again, not to get too technical, it's in a Greek term called aorist perfect, which is repetitive. It's repeating. <laughs> and again, the readers will get that. Gentiles, not so much. Right? So what is he saying here? Oh, by the way, you got trials? 
Well, guess what? It's, you're going to have more. But what do these trials do? It shows that your faith is genuine. Do you really love God or do you love what God does for you? Do you really believe what the word says for you? Or do you believe it kind of more esoterically? If we confess our, our sins, he is faithful and just to purify us and forgive us of all unrighteousness. What's your, what's your role in that? If. <laughs> what has God done? Everything else. Remember we talked about the gospel? The gospel is you done messed up. That's, that's your part. What's the rest of it? God, through Christ, reconciles us to God in heaven. Opens up the path of heaven and grace and forgiveness. You know, sin is a weight. It's a weight. You feel it. It's, it's an emotional, it's a mental, it's a spiritual, and it is a physical weight. And the enemy loves it because he wants you to carry as much of it as possible. Because he knows the more you carry, the more burdened down you are, and the less you stop believing in what God says about himself. Israel leaves Egypt, but Egypt is still in them. And so God has to provide four tests before they get to Mount Sinai. Because when they get to Mount Sinai, it gets real. You, before you get to the mountain of God, heaven, you will be tested. You will be tried. You will, the genuineness of your faith will be shown in so many different ways. And I just want you to know something. I need you to hear this. It's for a reason. It's for a reason. It's not freedom from, it's freedom to. It's not freedom from sin, it's freedom to Christ. And along the way, you got to grow up. Let's bow our heads, let's pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. This morning, we are celebrating communion. So each of you, when you came in this morning, got these little plastic cups, and I'll explain how these things work. If you did not get one, if you need one, uh, Ken will be at the back, and he'll walk forward. Just put your hand up, and we'll make sure that you get one if you didn't, if you didn't receive one. And if you see a hand go up, this is just for, just for the community, nothing else we're making you do. If you need a communion cup, please let us know, and Ken will make sure you get to it. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Communion is Passover. Passover was the Jewish reminder that on one night in history, the angel of death came for the people of Egypt. And all they had to do was take the, the blood of the lamb and spread it upon the door of their household. Remember, the stone door that had the names on it. Cover that up with the blood of the Lamb. This is what we are celebrating today. So this morning, before we celebrate communion together, the Bible tells us that we need to make sure that our hearts and our spirits are in the proper place. So even right now, whether you're at home or here, what you need to do is spiritual inventory. Do you sit here this morning, here or elsewhere? And can you honestly say that you received God's grace and forgiveness for anything in your life that you need to confess? Because if you have not yet, I encourage you right now to say, Jesus, I need your forgiveness right now. And it's not just about today or yesterday. It could be for the last weeks, months. In the pandemic, we have picked up bad spiritual habits. And maybe we need to sit here this morning and we need to say, Lord, I have not taken seriously my spiritual faith. The genuineness of my faith is really lacking right now because I have not 
sought you. I have not confessed to you. And I've picked up habits that I know are detrimental to what you want from me. So before we celebrate communion together, before we do that, the worship team is just going to sing. They have a song prepared. They're going to just do a verse, and then we're going to celebrate communion together, and then we'll sing the rest of it together. However, uh, Ben and Kendra want to do that. But just before we do that, let's just take this moment right now. Dear Jesus, I thank you that your forgiveness and your love far exceeds the debt of our sin. Lord, sin is a debt. It's, it's a debt and it is death. And Lord, we feel that debt and we certainly feel that death. I pray in Jesus' name, Lord, for all of us who are here, whether in person and online, whether it's now or at a later date, Holy Spirit, reveal God's love to each of us in Jesus' name. Lord, we confess our sins to you right now, communally, as a community. And we place our trust in the gospel. The best news that we ever have is that we are forgiven and loved, not because we're perfect, but because we are imperfect. And every time we fall, every time we fail, every struggle, every trial, as, as James and Peter puts it, is just an opportunity for us to just place our trust and our faith in you. Not because we know the outcome, not because God's going to do what we think he's going to do, but instead because of who God is. Lord, forgive us for seeking after your hand, which is your, your provision. But Lord, let us seek your face, which is relationship and intimacy with you this morning. That is what we need. That is what we want from you. Spirit of the God, please confirm this in all of our hearts and minds right now. And God, for those who are struggling right now, I feel right now that there's a couple of people here in person right now that when I mentioned this idea of the pandemic and bad behavior, something just came to their minds. Holy Spirit, apply a double portion of your spirit to those individuals right now. Let them ex receive your grace and forgiveness. Lord, it can be a thousand steps away from you, but it's only one back to you because you pursue us. When we choose paths, when we make decisions that can take us away from you, Lord, I thank you that you go with us and that you long for us to come back to you once again. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would grant that to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Hold on to the communion. We're just going to sing a couple of verses or a verse, whatever Peter wants to do, and then I'm going to come back up, and I'm going to walk you through how to use this, and we're going to celebrate communion together. So here's how this works. There's two parts to this. You may not know this, but there's actually bread at the top. The bread is horrible. Just a, just a little warning. So let's peel the top. Oh, I peeled a little juice. Okay, all right. I'm going to see if I can. Oh, no, I did. I cracked open. Okay, good. Be careful. Don't peel the juice or you'll get messy. Okay. I'm almost there. Oh, there you go. Okay. <sighs> Jesus on the night he was betrayed. He took the bread. Remember, this is the Passover bread. And he held it in his hand and he said, this bread is my body, which has been broken for you. He was prophesying about the cross. We just sang about it. The cross is, our, is, is the best part of the gospel and the worst part. The worst part is we desperately need it because we're so sinful. 
So he took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. This is the reminder that the cross was for you for the sins that we have that separate from the God. Let us eat. I told you it was bad. Now let's crack open the juice. Be careful. Then Jesus took the cup. What I, re- what I learned many years ago was that there are four cups on the Passover meal. And the final cup is the cup of Elijah, which is the metaphor for the Messiah's cup. Jesus grabs that cup and he says, this is my cup. He's telling his disciples who he is in a very clear way that the Jewish people understood. But the cup is also, a, he says, it's different. He says, this is my cup. But he uses a very interesting word. He says, this is a new covenant. And the new covenant is that we are forgiven. We are forgiven time and time and time and time and time again. Right? And he says, this is a covenant that says every time we seek forgiveness, every time we go to Jesus and say, Lord, I have fallen, I have failed, Jesus is there to faithfully pick us up every time. And every time we drink this cup, we become brothers and sisters with our Jewish brothers and sisters. And we we, we celebrate the Messiah's cup and we celebrate the new covenant that God has given for us. We just sang the words, out of the cross, God's love is poured out for us. This is the cup of the Messiah. This is our promise that God gives for us. Let us drink and celebrate in that. Jesus, we thank you for the cup of the Messiah. We receive the cup, we drink the juice, and we are reminded Yet every time we fall, every time we fail, every time we fall short of what God has for us, you lovingly, by your Holy Spirit, in your grace, pick us up, hug us, and, and, and move us on our way. Dear Jesus, let it be said of all of us right now that we would be a people who grow, who learn, who continue to seek after you in every way we possibly can. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and let's continue to sing together this morning. So one of the things we do here, we are kind of shifting things a little bit and we do the announcements at the end. So just want to kind of give you a little heads up with some stuff that's coming up. Um, So we mentioned this last week and many of you sent me emails or talked to me and you all seem very excited about the retreat. So next week we will have retreat forms, but I just want to give you a quick note. Space is going to be limited because of physical spacing and all that. Um, so next week, you can sign up for the retreat to kind of book your spot. We're going to make it as cheap as possible uh, for this. We're so excited to have this. So Renew 5, March 4th to 6th, 2022. Um, it's going to be a ton of fun, and I can't wait to, uh, to, to do this with you once again. So just want to kind of let you know that this is something that's going to happen. Also, as we kind of enter into the holiday season, we want to let you know what's going to be happening in regards to in-person and online now, what I always find interesting is I make announcements, I talk about this, I put it in the update. Oh, by the way, you know the update, that thing, the QR code, the thing no one ever does, or only a few people do? It's all going to be there. So just going to let you know. So for f- December 5th and 12th, we're going to be in the theater. 
So we're gonna, just like normal, 5th and 12th, we're going to be in the theater together. One of the things we know is that our students are going to be leaving us. We will miss our students, of course. But then that means that, you know, the majority of people who are here this morning will no longer be here. So we just feel like it's going to be, people are going to be spread out and all that. So we're going to be doing on December 19th a live UCC stream. So we're going to be the, 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 the on, uh, online church. But it'll be live, so you can text in questions, and I'll be kind of continuing on the series. Uh, oh, by the way, the Christmas series, I'm really excited about Christmas time. Some people are like, hey, you know, I want to go to church at Christmas time. We'd love for him to come on out because I'm, I'm kind of excited. I'm going to I'm gonna teach a sermon next week from a pastor scripture I have never taught a sermon from before. So I'm, 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 I'm pretty excited about that. Um, December 24th, our Christmas Eve service. Uh, it's going to be online as well, too. So it'll be December 24th at 6 p.m. And it'll be pre-recorded, our worship teams, and we have a kids thing and all that. And I'll be sharing a Christmas message. So because we also know, too, again, people are spread out. So December 24th at 6 p.m., it will be online uh, again. And so that'll be uh, uh, well, December 26th. It'll be online and pre-recorded. So you can join us Sunday morning. It's Boxing Day, so we know some of you who work retail or, or, or jobs, it'll be difficult for you. So it'll be at the same time as normal, but we, it will be online. January 2nd, we're going to do some kind of fun. This is one of those, remember I said to you I have weird ideas, and I always put it out to my, uh, to my staff, like, hey, what do you guys think of this? And this one, they thought was kind of cool. So January 2nd, we're going to be doing an in-person service. It's just not going to be here. So Kendra, one of our worship leaders, is, is a new manager of this new kind of cafe, karaoke. It's, it's all sorts of stuff. It's, that'll be opening up soon. It's called Le Chinsoi. It's a very cool, very, uh, very, very French-sounding name. But because of Kendra's relationship and uh, with the owner, the owner, by the way, is a guy that I used to deal with uh, when I used to rent the chainsaw to do young adults back at my former life, if some of you remember that time. Uh, well, he has a new establishment, and he remembers us, and so we are going to be having a new relationship with him. And young adults, you'll be into this new place as well, too. We can't wait. So January 2nd, we're going to do an in-person service, but you know what? We're going to do a pancake breakfast that morning. And so we're going to get together for pancakes and, and, and all that. And it's just going to be a great time. And we're going to have worship with more, more of an acoustic. We are going to stream from uh, Le Chinsois. So we're going to do a breakfast beforehand, and then we'll do a regular service. It's, it's going to be kind of cool because we can fit everybody in this place. And so that'll be January 2nd. And I'll create a Facebook event just so people can ignore that, but also get more, more information for that as well, too. Um, so if you want to help me uh, cook pancakes that morning and all that, just please talk to me. We'd love to have you. We, you know, we have this... The great thing about the Le Chinsois, I have to make sure I always get that name correct, um, is they have a full kitchen, which is fantastic for us. And so we're going to be using that for our breakfast. So January 2nd, in person, not here, over there. And so we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna have that. And so this is a new relationship with this establishment. We're so grateful for Kendra and for Ryan, the owner, who has a positive remembrance of me, which not many people seem to do anymore. So uh, I'm excited about that. So uh, we're going to enter into a relationship with them for that. So we're really excited to have this location for us to use for these type of things. So a lot of information, just uh, uh, again, just so you know. Uh, and as always as well, um, you can continue to support UCC, and again, we're so grateful. And in the update, just so you know, if you ever wanted to look at the update, we kind of keep you up to date as far as our finances, as far as you know the giving and all that. Again, this is part of our, our transparency. Uh, just a quick note, I put this in the update, again, for those of you who don't read. Um, if you want a charitable receipt for 2021, all donations have to be received by um, uh, December 31st. And uh, if if... Some, someone said, hey, I want to give a large donation. If you do so, we're, of course, we're grateful. 
but use e-transfer because uh, that way we don't have to pay any service fees. Uh, that's always kind of a fun thing for us. So, uh, you know, e-transfer is uh, a great way to use that because that, we, that just goes directly into our account and that's the info at uccwaterloo.ca. So there you go. Lots, right? Um, so next week we start a new Christmas series. It's the Kingdom of Christmas. Ooh, I'm excited about it. Uh, and so we'll be doing that starting up next week. If you have any questions or you want prayer, I will say at the front, I'll mask up again, don't worry, and uh, we will uh, do that together. Let's stand and let's have our benediction for this morning and send you off onto your day. Dear Lord Jesus, it's been a lot this morning. Jesus, I am so grateful for the cross. I'm so grateful for the gospel which is greater than I understand. It's infinite in its capacity to surround and develop and grow me. Lord, I just pray in Jesus' name that we would not be like Israel, grumblers and stiff-necked and stagnant, but instead we'd be disciples of Jesus. Not perfect, but partakers of grace and forgiveness, which is given to us time and time again through Christ. Lord, I pray that Uptown Community Church would continue to be a place, a sanctuary for those who are lost, who are broken, who are needing to hear that. But Lord, it also would be a place where the found can grow and, and be discipled as well too in you. Jesus, you have given us all that we need by your spirit and by your blood to be disciples of you. And I just pray, God, we would take advantage of that this morning. Be with us this rest of the week as we go out into the world. Now may the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and abide with each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for being here. Have a blessed week. Take care.